whether it's climate change, the implosion of democracy, the polarization of wealth in society, racial bias, the systemic bias against people of color and in Canada are indigenous peoples. Like whatever it is, don't be wicked, wounded, or witness, right? Take ownership. That accountability message is a profound message for me in every domain of life. I am Alex Pascal, CEO of Coaching.com, and this is Coaches on Zoom Drinking Coffee. My guest today is known the world over as the teamwork doctor. Her impressive client list includes companies like Amazon, Walmart, Google, and Sony, just to name a few. She's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, and you've likely seen her as a leadership expert in pieces for CNN, USA Today, NPR, and Forbes. If that weren't enough, she's also a New York Times bestselling author of You First, Inspire Your Team to Grow Up, Get Along, and Get Stuff Done. And also her second book, The Good Fight, Use Productive Conflict to Get Your Team and Organization Back on Track. Welcome, Leanne Davey. Thanks, Alex. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining me. So what what are we drinking today? Well, it's a black tea kind of day. It's cold and pouring rain here in Toronto. So it's one of those days where I need something like strong and, uh, <laughs> and to get me through. So how about you? Same? Yeah, well, you chose tea and you had said you had mentioned Barry's tea. So I went to the grocery store and got some of Barry's tea, which I've never had before. It's exciting that you could find berries. So berries is Irish breakfast tea, uh, which my friend June introduced me to. And that is some good stuff. Stick to your ribs kind of tea when you, when you need that little oomph. So I'm glad you're enjoying your berries. Cheers. I am. Yeah. Cheers. Yeah. I'm in California. It's actually a little bit cold today. So it's perfect. And it's noon. So I can't really have a caffeine after, you know, like two or three, but. <laughs> okay. So you're still safe. <laughs> yes. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for joining me. We met before. We had a great conversation. And I thought, you know, we have to have you on the podcast. So thank you for being with us today. I want to start by just learning more about you. Like, you know, it's so interesting when you think about coaching, leadership development, it's relatively kind of like a new endeavor for people to jump into, right? So I'm always fascinated to learn more about how people ended up doing what they do in these fields. So take us through the beginning, you know, how, how it all start for the in, this, in this profession. Yeah. So if you want to go all the way back, when I was a little kid, there was a TV show called The Polka Dot Door. And it was a crazy kid show, but this big door they had with polka dots on it, there used to be a segment where they would, you know, sort of open one of the polka dots and go through the polka dot into a factory tour. And I was obsessed with those factory tours as a kid. And actually at 50, I'm still obsessed <laughs> with going on factory tours. And so I got really interested in machines and industry and that sort of thing very young. And at some point I realized, probably when I took physics, I realized that being an industrial engineer and designing factories was not going to be the path for me. And at some point, I realized that in a knowledge economy, that actually teams are kind of the machinery of business now. 
And so in second year university, I stumbled into organizational psychology and I was hooked. So I came from this real love of business and particularly industry. And to this day, I still take clients specifically because they have cool factories. So I have been in some of the most amazing factories in the world. I've been a mile underground in a copper mine. I have been at the Viagra manufacturing facility, which is very high tech. In the Mars chocolate bar factory, I I try as often as I can to still mix my talents in uh, in helping teams with the chance to get into real factories and see how things are done. That's a great story. Came full circle, right? From the games to actually the actual factories. So that's really cool. Yep. So was the focus on teams always there for you? Because I know a lot of organizational psychologists focus on organizations and individuals, but it seems like the conversation around teams is becoming more and more prominent. So when did it start for you? Yeah. So right from the very beginning. So I guess I started my dissertation in 1995, as my kids say, like in the previous millennium. (laughs) And I studied how team dynamics affect a new product innovation. And so I was doing weird things back then. I had one advisor in psychology and one in engineering looking at high-tech innovation. And so it for me, it's been teams since 1995. I've always liked the complexity of teams. I know a lot of industrial psychologists work with individuals, the assessment, really going deep and understanding the psychology of, of an individual. I wanted something even messier. <laughs> Teams, of course, are incredibly messy, incredibly complex, because as soon as you change out one member of a team, it can completely change the dynamic. So that's been my happy home base for, well, I'm not going to count how many years that is, 27 years, I guess. (laughs) That's awesome. And along the way, you've written two books. And I have to say, you know, before we get into your books, I just love your vibe on LinkedIn. Like, Tell us a little more about, like, you know, the story behind, like, how you present all of your information on LinkedIn, which is, I don't know, you know, I'm sure some people uh, watching us and listening to us have seen you on LinkedIn, but you just have very creative, it makes (laughs) me stop, you know, when I'm scrolling down the feed. So I want to learn learn more about the genesis of that. And and please describe that for your post for people that haven't necessarily seen those. Thank you. Uh, I've been working hard on that, so I'm glad it's working. It's working with me, at least. You know, yeah, I love. Well, <laughs> I'll take that as a good sign. Um, so essentially, what I'm trying to do is, first of all, go to LinkedIn because I think that's where things are happening. And this new kind of purpose I have for myself is to host the most important conversations about work in the world. That's kind of what I aspire to over the next decade is I want to be hosting the most important conversations. So that's how I think about my LinkedIn. So I think about it a little bit like uh, my living room and the comments section as my couch. So what I'm trying to do is give you something. Uh, I try to cite research if there's uh, new research that people don't know about. I try and give some kind of an insight or a new way of thinking, something very practical you can use. And as I'm sure you've noticed, some ridiculously embarrassing photo of myself to get you to stop scrolling with the goal 
of having you not just whiz by, but to stop and sit down on the couch, make a comment. You'll see every single comment I get, I respond to, hopefully with something, you know, engaging, interesting that opens a new conversation. So I'm trying to make LinkedIn feel like the coolest couch on which to have interesting, important, profound, practical conversations about work. And so that's what I've been working on. Um, I think that there have been close to 8,000 comments in the last five months. So the conversation is heating up, getting good. And I'm, I'm really loving just being generous, sharing what I've learned, but also learning from others. So uh, LinkedIn is my, my happy place. That's awesome. Yeah, I honestly, I think it's like clickbait with depth and something interest, right? It's like you, it, it's hard to fight for attention online because we're constantly being bombarded. You're scrolling through all these different things. So something that catches your eye and has depth and has meaning and it's going to potentially help you at work is powerful. And, you know, it's very well done. So I wanted to, I definitely wanted to talk Thank about you. that. And I'm sure people are going to go and, and look at your LinkedIn now. They're curious to see some of those things. I hope so. And, and don't just walk by the couch, sit out on the couch. You don't let's, make let's chat. I love that. Yeah. It's so important to do that these days. You know, we're all remote. We don't get to see each other as much. So the way we kind of create these virtual couches pre-metaverse, and maybe we'll talk about that because it's all over the place now, but pre-metaverse, just really metaphorically sit on that couch is powerful. I love it. Tell us a little more about kind of the genesis of your book. So your first book, You First, Inspire Your Team to Grow Up, Get Along, and Get Stuff Done. Tell us about that. And, and let's start with, I'm always fascinated with there's so many things if you're going to write a book that you can write a book about. It's like, how did you end up with these precise book? Was that the first title? It was the content that you ultimately published what you were originally thinking of publishing. Tell us the story around uh, behind that book. Yeah, absolutely. So the story was actually a business story, which people might find interesting. So I was the leader in a Canadian consulting firm along with my colleague Vince Molinaro and Tammy Herman and Brian Benjamin, we were, you know, running this really cool consulting firm here in Canada that was punching above its weight in the industry. We were getting a lot of attention and we wanted to grow into the US. And so there was the possibility that we could add physical offices. But when we looked at that, that would be a massive investment. And we were worried that that wasn't a good way to grow. So we made the business decision to grow with our ideas. So to get our ideas out there, to use keynote speaking as a way to attract a new audience rather than building out offices. So it was actually a business reason why we did it. But when it came to what was going to be in the book, that was very personal. And what it was in all my years of working with teams, there is nothing that gets me frustrated faster than somebody who blames all the problems in their team on everyone else. And I actually had a client where I was talking about this. I felt like no one was owning their piece of the team dynamic. And one of the guys, his name was Larry. He goes, Leanne, that's because this is the company salute. And he used the name of the company. He's like, this is the Acme salute. <laughs> it wasn't Acme. <laughs> and I was getting so 
frustrated with how people were either waiting to get a better boss, waiting for the boss to hire a consultant, waiting for the jerk to get fired, and no one was taking ownership of how changing their own behavior could change their team for the better. So you first, somebody said, why'd you write a book about teams called You First? That was going to be one of my questions for you. (laughs) (laughs) So You First is fundamentally a book about accountability. And the promise of the book is that you can change your team from any seat at the table. Because you and I know as psychologists that a, a dynamic is affected by any party to that dynamic. And so you might be the wicked one and you being less wicked will change your team, but equally you might be the wounded one or just the witness and you changing how you show up will change the team dynamic. So I was really passionate about writing a team book where you didn't have to wait for anybody else to be different, to make your team better, that you could change your team for the better. So that's, that was that book. And it it was, I was very passionate (laughs) and still am about the people who think they have no agency or no accountability to make their teams, the teams that they deserve. That's wonderful. I love the frame and kind of think pivoting a little bit and writing a book about teams that's really framed for individuals, which is so powerful. And he was very well received. It was a New York Times bestseller. Yeah, that was exciting. Tell me more about that. Like, were you expecting that you would have a New York Times bestselling book when you wrote that book? I don't think anybody does. We did a lot of work to try and promote the book. And and when you're in consulting, you get this benefit of being able to kind of go out and work on bulk sales and all those sorts of things. So it wasn't a bestseller in the sense that Atomic Habits has been selling millions of copies for years and years. But you know, there was demand for those kinds of ideas, a new way of thinking about team effectiveness. And those lists ultimately are not all that important. They're kind of vanity metrics in some sense. But what I wanted was a book that was a very different take, a book that could be purchased by team members, not just team leaders, people who deserved, knew that they wanted something better. So that was what was exciting to me was the promise of the book was super exciting. So I'm still, all these years later, I'm still really proud of that. Yeah, you should be. I think the idea of bringing accountability at different levels that you could be the boss and you could be doing that or you could be yes <laughs> or you could be you know someone that just joined the team but taking accountability could really have a huge impact in the way the team is able to kind of get cohesive ideas and projects flowing and enhance effectiveness so and I really think it's a fascinating frame because so often when you think about teams, you think about the team and the team dynamics, but teams, of course, I've made up of individuals. So to provide that accountability component is very powerful. I think the interesting thing is there are a few interesting things came out of this framework of the wicked, the wounded, and the witness. And, and one was, as I started paying attention, the really interesting thing was that the person who most often needs to leave to change an unhealthy dynamic is actually the wounded person 
not the wicked person. So that was really interesting because, you know, wicked people are often behaving badly because they don't know a better way to behave or they've never had consequences for behaving that way. And we can help them get to the other side of that. When somebody decides they're the victim, where they have no agency, they have no way of making things better. And when they can't believe anymore, it's extremely hard. And I've been working on this for 20 years. It's extremely hard to rehabilitate their relationship with the team. So that was interesting. That came out of it. The other thing was that there are so many witnesses. We've been taught since a very early age to kind of mind your own business. And people sit back and let the dysfunction happen. And that is such a bad strategy because we know if people intervene, if people help to break up sort of tug of wars in in unhealthy conflict or those sorts of things, that the witness can completely change the team dynamic. So it was interesting because the emphasis kind of came away in some sense from, you know, the wicked behavior and got on to these people who were wounded by the dynamic and the people who are just sitting and witnessing it. So that was a really cool outcome for me that was sort of the mix of the ideas from the book, but then also years and years of being like up, rolling up my sleeves and being in with teams was to see that that dynamic plays out a little differently than I think people thought. So many questions that are coming out for me as, as I'm hearing you talk. But to stay kind of thinking about like just the books and you, your process for developing these books and then the consulting around the work that you do. So tell us about the journey from writing the book to start implementing in your consulting practice and, and working with clients using these framework to your subsequent book. Like what was that journey about? And the subsequent book is The Good Fight, Use Productive Conflict to Get Your Team and Organization Back on Track. Yeah, that was a very direct line. So when I wrote You First, there was a chapter. So essentially, You First is structured as two sections. The first section is here are the five ways that teams become toxic. And I looked at a taxonomy. (laughs) Can you have a taxonomy of toxic teams? That's hard to say, (laughs) but that's the first half was. So I looked at crisis chunky teams and bleeding back teams and bobblehead teams. I looked at this taxonomy of unhealthy teams. And then in the second half, I looked at five individual behaviors, five things that any person on the team can do differently that will change that team dynamic. And the fifth was embrace productive conflict. So as I was out giving keynote speeches, touring the book, applying the book in my consulting, it was very clear which of the five things people were like, mm. <laughs> that phase you just did is one, it reminded me of my LinkedIn feed. So that, that's one of the, the phases you do, I think. <laughs> yeah, these faces just, yeah, they just happen. I apologize. Yeah. So that fifth one, people were like, oh, Leanne, you know, about that last chapter. <laughs> So it was very clear that the one that was most challenging, the responsibility that was really stifling the vast majority of teams was that they did not know how to have conflict effectively. They were neither ready nor willing nor able to embrace productive conflict. So the second book was definitely, okay, let's go deep on how to... So the interesting thing about that book was I started asking myself, um, okay, there's so many books about difficult conversations, fierce conversations, crucial conversations, radical candor. There's so many books out there. How could this still be an issue? How is it possible that people aren't yet having conflict? And what I realized was that 
you know, we were teaching people the skill set of productive conflict and not tackling uh, the things on either side of that. So if we say it's lovely to have a great conflict skill set, but if your mindset is still that conflict is unprofessional, uh, unproductive, unladylike for half of us, it doesn't matter how many skills you have, you're not going to use them because your mindset is that conflict is unhealthy. So it became very clear to me, particularly through the psychologist lens, that we are not set up with a healthy mindset about conflict. And that's why we weren't using the skills. And then the second big aha that kind of came to me was even if we believe conflict is important and we have a great conflict skill set, it's exhausting. It's such a big ask to always take the higher. So the other thing I realized was that if I didn't help people go from conflict as an event to conflict as a habit, or what I refer to as the shift from conflict being like root canal to conflict being like flossing. If I didn't make that shift, people might have the odd good productive fight sometimes, but they just would shrink from the responsibility of that. So the third section of the book was about how do we actually create a culture of productive conflict processes and habits. So yes, there's a little bit about skills, which is, you know, you could read all those other books and they're better probably than mine about that. But the good fight was really, let's tackle how biologically we're wired to avoid conflict, how we're socialized as kids to avoid conflict, how all these values plaques on the walls make us think we're not supposed to have conflict. Let's tackle that. And once we get people believing in conflict and more skilled at having conflict, let's tackle this root canal conflict as an event problem and start to make conflict high, high frequency, but low, low impact. That was a direct line out of you first, but as I've learned since I wrote it, very needed. Absolutely. Root canal analogy is I think, to, to moving from root canals to really being more like flossing. I think it's, it's very elegant. It's interesting to think about, you're talking about avoidance with your first book. And then, I'm sorry, is this, you're talking about accountability. And then you're moving into avoidance, right? So it's really, well, we avoid conflict because it drains your energy. But the longer term, if you keep avoiding it, it's going to be worse for you, right? So how do you push Way worse, right? Yeah. So in the good fight, I was trying to find a metaphor or a, a way I could make that really punchy. And I coined the term conflict debt and people have just run with it. They love it. So if you think about credit card debt, which is, oh, you know, I, I really, the air conditioner broke and I'm dying. I, I can't afford it, but I'm going to put that you know, new air conditioner on my credit card, but I pay for the privilege of getting something I can't afford. I pay interest and that interest compounds. And sometimes that interest becomes overwhelming. And the, what I end up paying is way more than what the issue would have been if I could have paid for it in the beginning. Well, conflict debt is exactly like that. So maybe you're on a Zoom call with your team and you're about to give your presentation and someone turns off their camera and you think to yourself, what a jerk. Alex just turned off his camera. Like, obviously he's not interested in my presentation. Like, well, well, isn't he? And I tell myself this entire story about you turning off your camera being a slight against my ever so awesome presentation. And the problem is if I let that go, 
if I don't call you up after and go, Hey, Alex, what was going on? You know, I noticed you turned off your camera. If I don't give you the chance to either say like, well, actually my Wi-Fi was crappy. So I was trying to protect bandwidth or whatever else you want to say. Then what happens is when you send me an email later today, I don't even read the email with the same tone. I read it with a more menacing tone. And then tomorrow, when we're in another meeting, I'm interpreting your request as like, well, I'll get around to And we get into this vicious cycle. The weaker and the wounded, right? Yes, exactly. So the conflict debt concept is that, you know, we have these little important things that happen in our teams. And if we choose not to address them or work through them or deal with them, we pay the price of postponing that conflict, penalties, compounding interest. And it's usually very, very costly. It costs the organization. It costs us in eroded trust on the team. It costs us in stress. So that idea, when I got to this analogy of conflict debt, people have really run with it. People have sent me letters saying, Leanne, I got into so much conflict debt, I had to declare bankruptcy and quit. Or they they give me all sorts of ways that they use that metaphor. But somehow that stuck that, uh uh-oh, I can't afford to get into conflict debt because uh, it's going to bite me later. It's a great metaphor. And, you know, running as a software company, I immediately think of engineering debt, right? So you want to build new features, but at some point, inevitably, no matter, you know, to no fault of anyone, you will um, uh, accumulate that engineering debt and you have to spend some time clearing that before you can build new features. And I think it's a good metaphor for yours as well, like yours, because it's like conflict is going to happen. If you don't have friction, then you may not be doing something right. Like friction is inevitable, right? Let me give you a different word because I actually, friction is a word I use to describe unhealthy conflict. So for me, healthy conflict is tension. I like that. So if you think about tension, if you remember physics, which as I already told you, I did not do so well in. So tension pulls and stretches and makes something bigger. And we want that. We want the person in engineering telling the people in product or in marketing, like, hang on, I know you want more features, but if I don't get the APIs done for this, we're going to lose our integrations with all these really other important vendors. So you want that tension. And then you want marketing to say, that's all nice. We could have this perfectly bulletproof piece of software that nobody's going to buy because, you know, the competition's ahead of us with these seven features. That tension, because we have different expertise, different stakeholders, different obligations, that's healthy. And of course, tension makes things bigger. And you know what I'm thinking about before you, you keep going? It's the concept of anti-fragile or resilience. You know, in these complex systems we operate today, I think thinking about that, expanding that band is more helpful than thinking just about the friction that happens from daily day work, right? Friction, think about physics, friction wears things down, right? So friction, where we're having the same argument three months later, where we haven't made the call on, are we launching on this day or that day? We haven't made the call. Is version 2.0 going out with this feature or without? Friction is, you know, it starts as a business debate and then it goes like, you guys are always doing this. Like this is the fifth time in a row. I really, and then it starts to get personal. So it's really helpful to to understand conflict is uncomfortable. 
in any form. That's how it's supposed to be. That's a good sign if you're uncomfortable. I always say, if sales and operations are not fighting, sell your shares because there's not enough productive tension in the company. So there's always discomfort. But the difference between discomfort that's a stretch, like I'm thinking more broadly, I'm pulling out the time horizon, versus the discomfort that's a rub, which is you're not even listening. You're not taking my perspective. You don't care about my stakeholders. Those frictions are unproductive. They don't get you anywhere useful, but the tensions, wow, they can really help you grow, capitalize on opportunities. So that's how I talk about the difference, the visceral feeling between what is productive tension and unhealthy, unproductive friction. Bringing it back, I think, to the definitions of friction and tension is super helpful because you get that imagery in your head, right, around the difference of both. And at the end of the day, if that conflict and the way you're resolving it is really breaking things down, it's not scalable, right? So tension is scalable always to a point, right? But it's a lot more scalable and it's really start, you start thinking about sustainability. And I, I, I really like it. I mean... That's why it's so fun to talk to experts, right? Because that's, I think, when you're talking to an expert in a topic, it's, it comes down to the nuance of two words that high level sound pretty similar. And once you break them down, you really get to understand kind of the depth that is behind the differences in those words and how you can illuminate a whole topic around that, right? So it's... That was, yeah, that was very as, interesting. As and I don't warm- use friction at work. So I'm like, I'm going to start using tension. And tension... Yes. It's more of a conduit to have a better conversation about conflict. So I'm already learning by this a lot in these conversations. I love it. And like the important thing about keeping tension is that I want people to understand that conflict is uncomfortable. We're not supposed to be aiming for a point where being a part of a team is comfortable. That's not what we're. That's not the sign you're doing it right. Right. So in talking about tension. Like anybody who's had a really good stretch, maybe at a massage therapist or at the gym, a really good stretch can really hurt, right? It's uncomfortable, but it's a healthy, positive, constructive pain. So it's been important to me to normalize discomfort, but then to say, okay, but is the discomfort because you're having to think about something in a new way or let go of old assumptions? Is that why it's uncomfortable? Or is it uncomfortable because you don't feel heard, you don't feel understood or validated? That's friction. So yeah, normalizing that discomfort. And to your point with the stretch, you know, there's good pain. And then there's also you're doing the stretch wrong and it's painful, but you're not going to learn from it. You're going to injure yourself. So it is, you know, the nuances of like, I think that's why people work with experts and they bring expert organizational psychologists and other folks to help with the teams. Because I always, when I think about teams, I like to think that they're complicated, not complex because complex you know, it's, it's, it's very hard to solve complex problems. You need a completely different mindset, a different time scale. It's different. We like to throw the word complex a lot in like our vocabulary. So I wanted to ask you about that. Well, and I already told you how I see it, but I got love to see how you see it. What do you think about the, the difference now that we're really getting nuanced in terms of specific words and their definitions? So what comes to mind when you think about complex versus complicated when it comes to team dynamics? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I just heard a third one added, which I really like. There was there are complicated questions or complicated environments, complex environments, and then chaotic environments. And I thought the addition of the third one was really, I think Richard Clayton, I was reading that on one of his LinkedIn posts. And I found that really, really interesting. Before you, you go ahead, I would say that for me, complex is it's chaotic, right? Because when you think my understanding of complexity theory comes from pretty, pretty close to chaos theory, right? So it's almost like I can't think of one without the other, but you know. Maybe it's a matter of degree. Yeah. So uh-huh. I, I think the the reason I tend to think of teams as complex is because there's so many factors in predicting or understanding how one person will respond to someone else's behavior or a situation that we cannot possibly hold all the data in our heads at the same time. And so that's why. And the other thing is that, you know, if we think about as Ron Heifetz talks about, you know, technical versus adaptive challenges, which are much like complicated versus complex challenges. In some cases, we know with complicated things that technical expertise and background can help, can help us see the way through. Whereas in a very complex or adaptive challenge, technical expertise doesn't help. And I think there is, we're very close to teams getting to being legitimately described as complex because it is, there are so many factors going on. If you think about a team, and if you think about my dissertation work many years ago, looked at the very early applications of the statistics called hierarchical linear modeling. And it was- I used that in my dissertation. That's still traumatic for me. So- (laughs) I was, I had to code it because they didn't even have software for it. That's real trauma. (laughs) It was. So basically what we did is I looked at team dynamics and how they affected innovation. But what you're looking at is what are the characteristics of the individuals on the team? What's their personality? What's their IQ? What all those things? Then, you know, how does that interplay among the, and and Sandy Petland's lab at MIT is doing cool work on the social physics, they call it, of teams. But then you have to look at the team within its department or division and then within an organizational culture. So you're getting to the point where the brain can't quite cope with all of the factors that are at play. So as much as possible, I try and bring it down and make it just complicated. Like, what do we understand about what's the task? What's our purpose? Do we all understand our roles within that? What do we know about uh, our cognitive styles and the lenses we put? So I try as much as possible to move it from being complex and feeling just unknowable or unpredictable to, no, we can slowly, methodically move through these pieces and turn this into just a complicated problem. So that's... I see it the same way. And, you know, I love one of the... um, I haven't read in a while, but it's one of those books that I've been wanting to want to read again. So Jennifer Garvey's Simple Habits for Complex Times. So at the end of the day, I mean complexity, you have to bring it into the basics, right, to deal with it. That's how you deal with, I mean, in fact, in chaos theory, you start seeing some order within chaos. That's, that's the whole gist of it, right? So I think you describe the same thing in terms of team dynamics. And so, yeah, I, I, I think that's fascinating. And, and it's really how do you go about making these very complex environments distill into something you can say, well, it's complicated, but here's a pathway to help you navigate that. Because navigate complex is different than navigating complicated. So I like how you do that. And the interesting thing is that what we've learned over the years 
is that we don't start with uh, individual differences in human behavior. That that's actually not the best place to start. And so many team advisors go straight to the trust sessions and the interpersonal stuff, and they start there. And for me, it's a recipe for disaster. So tell us about your ideal approach for that. Yeah. So we always start with what is the business purpose of the team? And when we do that, we do it always looking from the outside in and looking out at a longer time horizon. Because the worst thing is so many people go off to some beautiful offsite location in the mountains and it's amazing. And then they just start blaming each other for everything that's not working. And what we find is that a huge percentage of things that manifest as trust issues on the team or as dysfunction on the team are actually misalignment issues. We weren't all clear about what the purpose of the team is. We didn't understand how we could each contribute to the team doing what it uniquely is here to do. And if we can solve for that first, we have a much better environment in which to then explore styles and behavior and all those sorts of things. So our process always starts with sort of looking out what does the organization need from this team. The other big advantage of that is then we say, how is the world changing? How is that creating opportunities and threats for your organization? And what does that mean your organization is counting on this team to kind of co-create together? When you do that, you are not then judging who they are today, how they're behaving today, and creating that defensiveness. Instead, you're saying, this isn't about you. This is about how the world is changing and how you need to be ready for it and how you need to respond. And so if we can stay out of that defensive positioning, that self-protective place, and instead have people thinking about, all right, where do we need to go? How are these things changing our purpose as a team? You create much more openness to that sort of evolution. So our ideal process starts with the business purpose of the team. Then we do get into the individuals using assessment tools to help us understand their cognitive styles, those sorts of things, but never starting there. Because when you start with the individuals, you create this, they put up their shields, (laughs) they protect, they shut down, and uh, then you're going nowhere good. Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. Let's talk a little more about kind of where the world is today. So we're kind of year two of a pandemic that's hopefully becoming endemic. The world of work has changed tremendously. There's a lot of cultural elements going on. There seems that we're going through like a culture war. There's talks of a real war out there right now with Russia and Ukraine. So the world, we're going through kind of a chaotic, messy period. Tell me a little bit about more, uh, like about how your views in the world in general, coming from the perspective of someone that works with teams and organizations. And to preface that kind of large, like the kind of like open-ended question, organizations rule the world, right? So we have governments, we have business, and they, there's an interplay between them. And there's also, you know, organizations run the supply chain. Like there's all these things that we rely on on businesses for. And, You are right there in the trenches working with some of these huge companies that have a lot to say about where the world is going. So I would love to get your take on, you know, let's start with year two of these 
pandemic that hopefully is becoming endemic. Like, what are some of the changes that you've seen in the way you work with clients over the last two years? Yeah, there's so many interesting things right now. And I have this profoundly different experience between my day-to-day life where I'm working with these companies who are just getting it done, right? Like they're still doing strategic planning. They're still producing product and getting into customers. There's like, in some ways, so little has changed. It's amazing how quickly we adapted to just being able to run an organization from having everybody be remote. So that's, you know, in some ways not different at all. But then when I'm sitting, I had a long weekend this weekend. When I'm sitting thinking about the role of work in society, some of the things that are going on, just even the how polarized society is becoming, Uh, Like in my quiet moments, I'm like, should we plant a garden so we could be self-sufficient if the system collapses? Like I actually, and I'm not that kind of person, but I actually have moments where I think we have made work inhumane for so many people. How long is this going to go on for? How long are we going to put up with this? How long can we go into this model where the rich are getting richer and richer and richer and richer and more and more people cannot even survive, get health care, feed their kids? Like, I do feel like at some point, this is unsustainable. And because in the U.S., that's now starting to be associated with the political system and now the fragility of what I assumed my entire life was the most stable democratic system in the world. Now I go, oh, like, wow. So it's this very strange contrast for me between all day, every day, everything just kind of marches along, same as always. But in my quiet moments, I certainly think you know, with the, you know, just the role of the U.S. changing in the world, the role of China in ascendance, you know, how's that going to change work? How is being remote going to change work? I just feel like there is something more tectonic happening. And yet those tectonic changes, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily feel them until we get the uh, nine on the Richter scale quake and the tsunami that follows it. I feel like something's setting up for, for a major, major 9.0 quake. And that's why I asked that question, because it's interesting to kind of see kind of how you're thinking about all these tectonic changes. So is there is there a helpful way in which we can use your the wicked witness and the wounded framework uh, to think about these kind of very kind of high level macro issues that we're all experiencing. And by the way, I do also think about sometimes growing some veggies or something because yeah, it's, you start thinking about that. I'm not sure that Toronto is the best place to, uh, to have to be. Yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, winters could be a bit painful. So it's a, it's a good question. So wicked wounded and witness are all bad things. So I think to the extent that you can say in any situation you're in to avoid being any one of the three. So if you're thinking about uh, what's happening with politics in your, your town, your state, your country, don't be wicked. <laughs> don't be fueling. Don't be sharing misinformation. Don't be, I don't know, whatever else is you're doing that's wicked. 
don't be wounded. Like, don't just sit there and complain that it's everybody on the other side that's the issue. And for goodness sake, don't be a witness. Don't sit and let it all happen because it's all these things, whether it's climate change, the implosion of democracy, the polarization of wealth in society, racial bias, the systemic bias against people of color and in Canada are indigenous peoples. Like whatever it is, don't be wicked, wounded, or witness, right? Take ownership. That accountability message is a profound message for me in every domain of life. And then, you know, where I get more prescriptive is in some of the nearer term changes. So the one that I've been thinking and being a little bit more practical about as opposed to my uh, build a solar off-grid <laughs> version is uh, hybrid teams. So one of the things that's going to be very prevalent in the next little while is that we're going to have teams where some people are physically together in an office and some people are remote. Now, we've always had that in organizations, right? We've had, you know, the team in Minnesota and the team in Bangalore, like that's always existed, but it didn't tend to be people who report to the same manager. So it wasn't intact teams that were physically separated. We mostly have intact teams together. But now we're going to have these hybrid teams. Psychologically speaking, this is set up for disaster. <laughs> the psychology of a hybrid team is painful on so many dimensions. So that's where I get a lot more practical and prescriptive in saying to people, okay. Tell us a little bit more about the dimensions of pain around remote uh, teams. Yeah. So everything in a hybrid team is going to be asymmetrical, not a level playing field. So we know that when we, everything moved online, I spent a lot of time researching and sharing about how do we build trust in remote teams. And it's possible. It's absolutely possible. But we know that it interrupted some of the basic ways that humans create trust. So we know there's oxytocin released when we eat beside someone. It must come from something very ancient in us that if you ate beside someone, they must be safe. And so that's why we're drinking together. Yes, exactly. So we, we know that that happened physically. We learned over time that we could have that happen remotely, but, you know, building trust and strengthening trust in a remote team was different. Now what we're going to have is a team where some people are going to be eating together. They are going to be having downtime. They are going to be having the benefit of full body, body language to understand contextual cues while other people on that exact same team will have none of that benefit. So now we're going to have teams where the levels of trust are going to be much, much, much easier to create for one subset of people than for others. That's a nightmare. The number of, of false stories we're going to tell ourselves, the resentment that's going to build. We know communication is going to be similarly problematic. So a boss might understand this and be very dedicated to trying to keep a level playing field. But just imagine this scenario. The boss has a meeting with her boss. And she comes out of that meeting and you watch her walk across the office, go in, close the door, maybe close it a little harder than normal. You kind of see through the little crack of glass that she like puts her head in her hands. <laughs> well, then everyone in the office has that information, that contextual information. 
even if she didn't stop along the way and say, here's what the boss talked about and give legitimately more information, more content to the people in the office, they at least got more context. So now we've got people at home with less context, maybe less content even than the people in the office. So on so many dimensions, hybrid teams are going to be the worst of both worlds. We knew how to work together. We figured out how to work apart, but this test of our psychology, of our negativity bias, of our fundamental attribution error, of all these things that make us human is going to be so much worse in a hybrid team. So when I'm not building my my victory garden, (laughs) I'm thinking about this is the near-term issue that I'm very, very worried about. So I want to think a little bit more mid to kind of long-term along these lines. So the pandemic has really accelerated the conversations around the metaverse, right? Facebook changed the company name to Meta. I mean, we seem when you think about the metaverse, it's, it's really like creating these virtual worlds that feel like you're right next to each other, right? And I think when you think about, you know, we have all these server farms everywhere. There's We created a new universe that's a digital universe where we are the gods, right? We're creating the foundational elements of these new universe, really. I mean, it's, it's fat technology is fascinating. I mean, it's once in series, right? All the way down, all the way up. It's, it's one of my most, I think the most interesting topics to think about like humanity building technology, the correlates for universal evolutionary development and what we're able to kind of do with some silicone and, and other raw materials, right? Create these universes. It's fascinating stuff. But when you bring it down to the core mechanics of these psychological principles, we seem to be getting potentially in trouble, right? Like creating these metaverses where the rules of psychology are completely different. They're new. There's a lot of research we have to do. There's a lot of research we have to do on just regular interactions. And now we're jumping into the metaverse. So what are some of the medium to kind of longer term implications, you think, of switching and starting to think about, hey, we can live our lives devoid of physical interactions and we can just basically rely on technology for the next iteration of the human experience? What what do you what are some of the things that come to mind along the lines of what you were describing in terms of core psychological principles? Mostly just all that we don't know. Right. So we know that touch is fundamental to humans. We know from experiments when you deprive humans of touch, that's a huge problem. It's we're not built to go without touch. Okay. So does this whole having our entire work lives be in a digital environment? How does that affect us? We don't know. We have no idea. We don't know about how body language is going to play out in these digital environments. I I was totally disturbed and completely not surprised to learn we've already got sexual harassment happening in the metaverse. I'm like, what was it like a week, a week it took us to have sexual harassment. And, and it's because the way the things were built, you know, I couldn't control if your avatar came into my personal space and I haven't done the metaverse yet. I've, I have friends who have experimented and played around in it, but you know, if you could all of a sudden come into my personal space and I couldn't control that, all of a sudden we've got these horrible, terrible human power dynamics in the real world. They're already in the metaverse. We like we were a month after learning the word metaverse. <laughs> we're already so like what other awful aspects of human behavior. Now, thankfully, the good news was we could correct that 
in code much more easily than we can correct it in the real world. So they very quickly, you know, patched the software, made it so that somebody could not come within a certain distance of your personal space. So maybe we'll be able to correct some bad behavior digitally that we uh, have a much harder time correcting for real. That's so interesting because there's a flip side of that, which is a lot more controlled environments as well, right? So you can control the bad, but you can also control everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, certainly digital to me has become synonymous with manipulated lately, right? Like I don't trust what I get on my feed anywhere anymore, right? I know that there's an algorithm, somebody somewhere, even if it's artificial intelligence, something is deciding what I see and what I don't see. That's so manipulated. Do I trust that? So all those sorts of things. So I'm all full of questions, but if we think about what we know is not going to change in 10 years, 20 years is basic human psychology. So do we have enough behavioral scientists who are building the metaverse? Do And I just feel like from the beginning with all of the challenges of Facebook, for example, just it, it's built to optimize on dimensions that are not human, right? So it's built to optimize on length of time on the page, number of reactions, strong reactions, all those sorts of things. Well, that may optimize the money they make, but it certainly doesn't optimize the human experience. So who's who's controlling how the metaverse is used for the workplace and what are we optimizing for? That's a frightening thought. Yeah, I think the so the evolution of consciousness and our capabilities for with technology have never been very aligned, right? That's why you get nuclear weapons and people that, you know, you that you split the atom and you create you weaponize it, right? So it's and yeah, it's an it's development, right? It's uneven and it's complicated. So oftentimes it's complex, but we are at this juncture where technology is, is such an enabler, right? And it can go in so many different directions. So interesting times to be alive for sure, don't you think? <laughs> yes. What's the cur- the curse? May you live in interesting times. I feel like may you live in interesting times has become the the curse version. There's certainly lots of really interesting stuff to think about. I really hope I get the, I went to my PhD. I did at a university called the university of Waterloo, which is kind of the MIT of Canada and uh, like brilliant, brilliant, crazy computer scientists and the largest math department in the world. Oh, wow. And uh, I, I never felt very smart there. And when I go there, I've been invited to come back and speak to the, the first year students. And I always say, this is the place that needs the strongest arts and humanities and social sciences department in the world because you can grow up alongside the programmers, the coders, the engineers. We need more people who can speak both of those languages so that we stop, you know, creating, splitting the atom without thinking about the implications of splitting the atom. We stop creating these algorithms that promote clicks and likes without understanding what's the cost of that to the complete polarization of society across the globe. Like, whoops, you know, this was just to rate, was a girl at Harvard hot or not? Like, how did we go from hot or not to the complete breakdown of, you know, civil discourse around the world? What what happened there? Well, you know, interesting, you mentioned like the focus on STEM programs. For example, in Japan, I think they're going away from from that focus on arts, on the arts, uh, and really more into science without the balance of it. I think it was in the news maybe two, three years ago, and it's terrifying. 
It's interesting. So do we specialize in the world where countries have a specialization around STEM and others around arts? Or do we need that to have, do we need societies to be more balanced and have those components within those societies, right? So as the world gets bigger, you know, we might have to rethink about how, what are the sources of, you know, when you go to a city, you know, there's the arts district and there's the other area where you have all the industrial plants and things like that. It's like, wh how does the world get reshaped when, at this larger scale and on planet Earth, right? Does Japan become a, a country where they specialize in STEM and there's very little arts? And I'm using Japan as an example because of some of the changes they're doing on their educational system around the opposite of what you're describing, that we should balance those out. But I'm a proponent of balance. I mean, Art and science go together, right? The best scientists in the world are artists. Yeah, and not even balance, yes. integrate, right? Like the problem is if we're just trying to balance, it's still, still two islands, right? It's like, how do we get people who can, that's what I love about what they're doing at the University of Waterloo. They're doing these big capstone programs that bring kids from all of these different disciplines together to wrestle with big, meaty problems. We need people who can think in an integrated way, who can communicate across, and I, I feel like we're just training these people who are so great at math or those kinds of things, but, but don't even know how to speak, like literally have been in their basements gaming for 10 years and don't know how or want to speak and communicate with people who, who look at the world from a humanities or a social sciences or a environmental or DI lens, right? It's like, we have got to this point where this specialization means that we are not looking at problems systemically anymore. And it's, it's terrifying. I'd love that you say these word integral, right? So I think my favorite thinker is Ken Wilber, integral theory. So it's really about that balance, right? And, and living in a world that doesn't have balance. So how do you, how do you operate when you have that? And you're mentioning you know, these metaverse and technology in general is created by people that are engineers. And as we know, sometimes engineers, you know, may not be the best in social interactions. Some are, some are not. In general, you know, just like people that do, you know, art sometimes wouldn't be great at coding, right? And some people are great coders and artists. So, you know, that diversity in terms of orientations around capabilities and traits. I think the people who are going to be really super valuable to our society are these boundary spanners. Like when I did my dissertation work, that was, I was looking at the role work of Teresa Amabile and Rosabeth Cantor and Amabile was looking at these boundary spanners. Those are going to be the people who are the most important to our society. People who can speak engineer and speak <laughs> you know, humanities. Those are, there are very few of them. They can synthesize in a different way. They think on a different plane. Those are the people we need to find. And we don't even need that many of them, right? But we do need them. And do we have the education and the social supports and the careers and the roles that really help those people span the boundaries between these different fields? Those are going to be our most important people. Boundary spanning is such an interesting concept. And as you're saying that, it just makes me think that we're we're building these digital world on top of an analog way of thinking about the world, right? And I feel like that setup doesn't necessarily help people that are boundary spanners to succeed. I feel like a lot of people that are boundary, that are good at, at 
different facets sometimes get lost in, you know, because you might not necessarily be fantastic at anything. You're really good at integrating, but you need a certain environment that recognizes that, which is interesting. And well, thank you for sharing your, your views on like the macro and what's going on in the world today. <laughs> and anything else you'd like to add on that, on that topic? I just, I always feel so uneducated, uninformed. Like I dedicate a couple of hours every Sunday morning to read as many things as I can to, you know, at least feel like I have some sense of what these things are that are emerging, but I know nothing. I'm, I'm really just trying to share openly what I ponder and what I worry about. And I'm, I'm getting increasingly worried. I feel less and less confident that we're going to have another 50 years that are like we've had for the last 70. I'm always fascinated to know more about like people's interests when it comes to reading. So I would love to know, like for you to tell us, like, which is your favorite book? My favorite nonfiction book is a book called Fermat's Enigma. I adore this book so much. And this book completely is just such a diagnostic projective test on who I am and how I think. So Fermat's Enigma is written by Simon Singh. It's the story of the mathematical problem Fermat's last theorem, which was basically a theorem that looked at the Pythagorean theorem. So A squared equals B squared plus C squared. And, and basically said that this is only true for the exponent two. It's not true of any exponent higher than that, which sounds very boring, but trust me. So what happened was in the margin of this book, Fermat wrote, I have proven this, but the margin is too small to contain my proof. And then Fermat dropped dead. And for the next like 400 years, people tried to prove this. And this the book is this incredible romp through 400 years of history and interesting stories to share this. So one of them is the story about a French mathematician, I forget, 17th century, something like that, who spent her entire career living as a man because a woman was not allowed to be a professor and study mathematics. So there's a whole chapter about her. The chapter, they talk about how when you solve a mathematical proof, you often start with prime numbers. And the chapter on prime numbers talks about how proving prime numbers was important to the theorem, but then talks about how the cicada has a life cycle of 17 years, a large prime number, because then the number of times that they're ever active at the same time as their prey is like this massively huge number because it's they have 17 years, whatever overlaps with 17 years. And so it's just this amazing story that is these seemingly random little fun, interesting things. And interestingly, he gets into talking about codes at the end and understand and, and the Enigma machine and how understanding solving the Enigma machine. And he got so into that that when he finished Fermat's Enigma, he actually wrote a whole book just on codes. And that book is just endlessly fascinating. But for the most part, I don't read nonfiction. I mostly read fiction. And I guess my favorite book I always say is The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna. And it's because it helped me completely change my perspectives on what courage is. And that was very profound. Plus I'm a, as any, I always think psychologists are always interested in World War II history because World War II history is really a lot of psychology. And uh, so it, the Nightingale is set in World War II and uh, very interesting. So 
my favorite nonfiction, my favorite fiction. Thank you for that. Love fiction, nonfiction. I read mostly nonfiction, but fiction can really open up some pathways. So it's a, it's one of my to do to kind of read more fiction. So you mentioned courage with your favorite book, uh, Nine Glee. What changed around the way you look at courage after you read that book? Yeah, it was so interesting for me because like, I think of myself as sort of risk averse and not a courageous kind of person. And this is a story of two sisters. And certainly the way the book starts, you think of one of the sisters as being the brave one, the courageous one. And, and I would say she's sort of courageous by trait, by, by character. But the other one is thrown into circumstances and that kind of force her to find something in herself she didn't know was there. So as the psychologist understanding, you know, or is it trait or state? Is it nature versus nurture? <laughs> uh, it was all that good stuff. And as somebody who thinks of herself as not entirely brave, I came out of that book feeling like I have brave in me when I need it. It is there. And there are probably examples in my life. And I could think of examples where I needed to be something for somebody else. And as a mother, I relate profoundly to it as a mother, right? When you need to be something for your kids, it is there when you need it. And so it was just this very profound and important thing. Like, stop thinking of yourself as not courageous and instead understand when you need to be courageous, it will be there for you. And it was just so, such a, like, wow, epiphany for me. Like, no, no. And, and you don't need to be brave in a reckless sense. You don't need to be brave in all situations. That's not even helpful. But understanding that it's there when you need it. I, I really love that. It's very empowering, isn't it? To think about that. There's there's more to us sometimes that we even know. So in certain situations, bring that forth and you display courage in ways you never could expect, right? So, yeah, very interesting. So now you, you got me thinking about maybe reading some more uh, more fiction. So thank you. Well, we know, and I recommend a lot of fiction when I'm talking about resilience, because we know that we know that reading fiction is associated with heightened empathy. And so I'm often telling leaders. So if you've seen the research that's been emerging over the last little while about how the more power you get in an organization, the longer you are senior in an organization, the less empathy you have. It just seems to decline over time. And I was reading a great newsletter by Safi Bacall, the author of Loon Shots yesterday, about this whole phenomenon of leaders and power being negatively correlated with empathy. And so with leaders, I'm, I'm constantly encouraging them get back. Back to the fiction, we know it's got a, an important bolstering effect on empathy. So it's an important sort of prescription for me. <laughs> if, a, if a psychologist can prescribe fiction, I would be prescribing it all the time. You know, it's interesting and kind of going back to where we were talking a few minutes ago about kind of the state of the world is if we have these larger and larger organizations that are managed by a small group of people that are reducing empathy just by the nature of their work. Yes. You know, it's we have to be aware of that because I think a lot of these people want to be in tune with that empathy, but just, I, I like, I love that you bring that up empathy. And when you think about it in the context of how we run the world today and large organizations having a very high impact, we need to make sure that our leaders don't lose touch with being empathetic because empathy is a huge driver for good in the world, especially at the scale that you can achieve 
when we have this setup of such large organizations making so many decisions around, you know, the entire supply chain, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And it's interesting. Like I look at somebody like Bill Gates. So in that really good documentary that came out about Bill Gates during the pandemic, I love the documentary, but he takes this bag of 40 books where he goes with them every week, but it's all nonfiction. It's like, and then all these things come out about his behavior and everything. I'm like, dude, you need to add some fiction. Well, I mean, we're talking about STEM, right? And balancing arts. I mean, the left and the right side of the brain. It's That's why Einstein is... I have three favorite thinkers of all time. And so Hegel, chronologically, Hegel, Einstein, and Ken Wilber. And you can trace a line through those, that conversation for another day. But... One of my favorite things about Einstein is that when you kind of read about his life, there was such a balance between the science. It's almost like he was struggling to be a scientist and he's maybe the best scientist of all time. And it's that struggle between being, you know, thinking creatively and outside the box and also being a scientist and putting it all into a formula. I mean, E equals MC squared, for God's sake. You know, it's it's so powerful. But now come back full circle, that struggle was tension, yes. not friction, right? So that's what's so profound is he he was being stretched by both, right? And, and each was making more of the other as opposed to one aspect of his life interfering with another. It wasn't friction. So, yeah, that's why I think it's so exciting. He was creating his own productive tension in his own head. Question. Does tension, as you're creating more and more tension, sometimes feel like friction? No, I think the more we get really self-aware, so the more people are working on embodiment and coaching and, and all that sort of thing, we can differentiate between the two. I think right now the problem is we're not very in touch with our experiences, so we label discomfort as just sort of discomfort. It's like, I, I don't like this. This is yucky. We don't have enough awareness of how these things are embodied. And so we just put this ew, yuck, ow label on it. The more we become aware of the difference, no, there are differences. We will be able to see the difference, feel, experience the difference between what is tension and what is friction. But if you just stop at, I don't like this, this is uncomfortable, then, and you don't interrogate the feeling any more than that, then that's where I think that we're going to have um, sloppy labels just go on uh, anything uncomfortable. Let's talk about coaching. So in the context of our conversation around these macro changes going on in the world, coaching seems to have popped out of the blue, you know, let's say 30 years ago or so, right? As a growing profession, more recently, a fast-paced industry that has a lot to do with technology these days as well. But it seems like we need to ask ourselves some really good questions and we might need people that can help us navigate through that. So I'm just kind of setting up our conversation around coaching, given that we were maybe getting a little bit like, Oh, the world's too complicated. And we're getting a little negative, but <laughs> there's something here that maybe could make it better. So let's talk about coaching. So tell us a little bit more about your journey towards like, you know, in the coaching profession, do you do one-on-one coaching? Do you only do coaching with teams? Tell us all. And then we'll kind of talk a little bit more about where the coaching profession is going. Yeah. The first thing I always say is I am not a certified coach. So I don't use the term coach for myself because I have respect for the, the skill set and the, and the profession. 
So I always talk about myself as a team advisor. So I don't do any one-on-one. Well, first of all, I don't do any coaching. I don't do any one-on-one work. It's just never excited me or inspired me. (laughs) I just thought it's not my mode. So I have always liked how complicated teams are. That's where I spend all my time. So my husband and business partner is a trained coach. And so he does the, the coaching piece of the puzzle and... Does he do embodiment coaching like you mentioned a couple of minutes ago? He does not. He does not. But I am pushing him. My friend Kendra Reddy, she's really pushing me and teaching me about embodiment and the soma and those sorts of things. So I'm learning so much from Kendra about that. Tell us a little more about that. Like what's what tell us about what it is. Tell us about like uh, Kendra and the work that she does. Yes, Kendra is amazing and she's doing this incredible work in, you know, well, the the piece, like she coaches broadly, but what she's helping me to work with and to understand is just about how these sensations, experiences, processing of the world shows up everywhere other than our very cerebral intellectual. And of course, when you do a PhD, you are trained for a decade to be a very intellectual, cerebral, cognitive processor of the world. And you pretty much ignore everything below your neck. So she's basically saying, Hey, how about at 50, you like reconnect to the rest of your body? I'm like, what a great idea. (laughs) So, you know, what I'm really trying to do, and this goes along with a daily meditation practice, mindfulness is to better understand all the information that my body is giving me all of the interplay between my body and the world, and then to be able to choose how I want to use uh, that information as somebody who's got more control over what, which sources of information I rely on, which ones I question or interrogate. So, you know, little things for me, like I know that my stress behavior is to allow myself to become overwhelmed. That's one of my, like, it's so obvious for me. But what I've been learning is about where does overwhelm show up in my body long before it shows up as a mental freneticness. And so I know for me, it starts to show up in my heart rate before I can even you know, understand that I'm processing it intellectually. It shows up in my, um, my palms. I can feel it in my gut. I could just, I, well, so what's great now is I'm just so now tuned into when those signals happen, I can then stop and say, Oh, you're doing it again. What, what? And the first thing I always look at then is how many windows do you have open on your computer? And the answer is usually about 30. <laughs> It's like trying to do all these things at once. And I don't operate well in that mode. I'm great in focus mode, in deep immersion mode, not in spinning many plates mode. So just learning about, you know, where do things show up in your body? Where are you experiencing them? The other thing is, you know, being able to have a feeling and instead of being frightened of it to kind of sit with it and go, oh, like, what is that dread? Where does, where does dread live? Like when I call something dread, what what is that? Where is it in my body? Is it, do I notice I'm clenched? Does dread sit in my neck or in my, actually I have uh, definitely my forehead. So just 
starting to learn and understand that we've got a lot more um, information we can access than what we're intellectually processing in the conscious mind. And it's been super valuable. It's early days for me. As you're saying that, I'm like, you're prompting all these kind of putting a lot of our conversation together because I'm thinking about, you know, these executives in a meeting and having the, you know, their eye watch telling them that their heart rate's elevated. And then you look at that and then you're like, you know, it's just, there's so many tools we have and we will have in the future to be aware of those things. And it's, can we, as we're automating a lot of those markers, can actually that be a deterrent for ultimately create empathy, right? Because if you're delegating a lot of that awareness, and we're just talking about these somatic kind of components, right? But the more we delegate to technology in these world where we're interacting with other humans, I wonder if that's going to continue to make us less empathetic, you know? Well, it'd be interesting. So if we if we delegate our own biofeedback to technology, that might be okay. I've often thought when I'm meditating that I know the first thing that goes is my forehead crunches. Like as soon as I go, oh, I'm thinking again, absolutely 100% of the time my forehead is crunched. And I've often thought I need a little sensor on my forehead that just tells me. So it's possible that automating our own biofeedback, if my Apple watch would give me a little vibrate, if something is registering, that might be okay. I worry about if we outsource to technology, noticing where other people are at. But it'd be interesting. It'd be interesting to try. There is some data that we can proceduralize empathy. So like, what if my watch sort of vibrated because somebody else was getting louder or their pitch was changing or their brows were furrowing? We also know in conflict that people's pupils dilate. If the room, if the smart room or if the Oculus headset or whatever could give us that feedback of something's notice, something's going on here, it's possible it could make it better. I I think these are all the cool and interesting questions that we have. There's going to be a lot of questions and there's going to be a lot of interesting, if not definite answers, like definitely a lot of research that starts illuminating a lot of that. And and it will be interesting to see how we go from where we are today into a world that has more technology more capabilities and at the same time, you know, more things to solve. So it's, it's, it's fascinating topic. Just one simple one that comes to mind for me. So the research out of the Petlin lab at MIT, the number one predictor of team intelligence is how equally the members of the team participate. So if you think about watching a football game, I mean, like soccer, they always have the stat live at the bottom um, percentage possession of the ball. And it's updating in real time. Now, what if you're on a Zoom call and there's like a percentage of the conversation dial under every person so that the goal was to get those roughly equal? Like that is the number one predictor of the quality of outcomes on a team. That is something so easy to measure. How much of the airtime are you taking up? There could be biofeedback on that in the moment. And that seems like an obvious opportunity to help teams get better really quickly in just promoting relatively equal contribution across members of a team. We could get that one. We should we should write to Zoom and say, hey, here's your big opportunity. I've seen tools that can analyze conversations. I don't know if there's a plugin for Zoom, but I've seen similar technologies that have that. And I actually know some people working on the coaching space, actually providing coaches feedback on how much time they spend talking, right? So, and then some coaches are sometimes shocked to see that they're doing most of the talking. And I think we all know as coaches that the client should be doing most of the talking, but you know, 
So absolutely. So and I know you present a lot. You present in at the WBEX Summit on coaching to a lot of coaches. You talk uh, about, you know, you have, I, I love your presentations. Actually, before WBEX and coaching.com came together, well, in the process, I was looking at a lot of the recordings and your talks just drew my attention. So it's not only just LinkedIn posts. I think, you know, you're very engaging and the way I think you, you present topics to coaches in a very interesting way. So knowing that, you know, you're not necessarily a one-on-one coach, when you work with coaches, what are some of the areas that you like to focus on that you think coaches find the most interesting? Yeah, I think the thing that I'm best known for in the coaching community, and and really it one of the things, because my goal is to have the most important conversations about work, many of those conversations are with coaches. The one that I've probably become built as the biggest reputation for globally is helping coaches with the whole space around conflict. And it's interesting because I don't think coaches themselves are great at conflict, many of them. Super conflict avoidance because they're so people-oriented. They love people, but sometimes loving people means having these... Uh... And they want to help and they want to be <laughs> liked. And they, so they have all the same challenges I have. So one thing about being liked, that is like, that is... One of the things that I hear a lot for enterprise coaching practice leaders is that, you know, a lot of the evaluations for coaching success, you're evaluating impact of coach engagement, but usually what you're doing is evaluating satisfaction with the coach and the coaches are super likable. So you might get a very high rating, but in set, but it's really satisfaction, not coaching impact. So that's something that they, that as an industry we're working towards. Because I think coaches should be putting a ton of tension uh, like they should be putting clients in a situation to feel tremendous tension. Coaches aren't supposed to resolve your issues for you, but they really should be putting you in those tension situations, asking the kind of questions that stretch you, make you really uncomfortable. And I think so many don't, right? It's a business model problem, right? So if you're a coach and most people, because people are avoidant, right? So, and then you want to work with someone that's going to make you feel great. And sometimes you want to feel great more than you want to be great or improve, right? So we've talked about all these earlier, right? When we're talking about your book. So is there almost... It'll kill the, it'll ultimately kill the industry, right? If coaches don't say... We have to find a way to add value doing the hard thing. So I talk about this. This is a stupid metaphor. (laughs) I talk about the difference between if you've ever gone for a massage, like at a spa, at a hotel, and they just kind of like pet you for an hour, charge you a lot of money versus going to a registered massage therapist who actually is a therapist and it really hurts and yet you're healthier afterward. So if we allow coaching to devolve into the like petting spa massage, <laughs> the the industry won't survive. It's not a silly metaphor. I think <laughs> it's, it's absolutely on point. And, you know, sometimes you need the lighter massage. Sometimes you need that. And I think coaches need to have that range, right? But as the way of operating, it does seem like it's hard for coaches to want to stretch people in some ways because people don't necessarily want to stretch, right? And if that's what you do for a living, at some point, we're adaptive creatures, right? And at the end of the day, as well-intentioned as you might be, you also have to pay for your kid's college, right? So I think as an industry, we need to come up with ways in which there's at some point, clear expectations from clients that it's not going to be all fun and games when you're working with a coach, right? There's going to be parts that you really, truly enjoy and make you feel great about yourself. 
And some of those parts that make you feel great about yourself might come way later down the line and it might be painful to get there, right? So Yeah, and let's not simply evaluate coaching with a smile sheet at the end, right? Let's actually ask like two years later, was that an inflection point in your life? You know, it's like, I don't want to know which high school teachers I liked in high school. I want to know I'm 50 and I can tell you exactly which high school teachers changed me as a human. (laughs) Those are people I'm grateful to 35 years later. But if we're only measuring who do the students like in high school, well, that's going to get you a very different list. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the coaching provision has a long way to go, but you know, it's great that now coaching is so, let's say marketable, right? Like People know about it. So what do you think's changed over the last 10 years that's made coaching resonate a lot more with large organizations? I'm going to go back to my sad view of human society. I think that many of these functions were served by people who didn't charge us in the past. We had stronger mentoring. We had... uh, (laughs) We just had other people in our lives who did this for us. And now the managers who should be doing so much of this are overburdened and overwhelmed with their own task list, not investing the time to do it. So I think partly it's that we've just decided that we can outsource this function that used to happen through different mechanisms. Like I had a mentor early in my career. I've had multiple mentors in my career who, you know, I had really great coaching conversations with them. They stretched the heck out of me. Uh, It was amazing. And, you know, I didn't have to pay for that. But now we're at a point where it's important. And it's like, why did we not have house cleaners 50 years ago? Because we cleaned our own houses. (laughs) But we've got to a point in society where some of these very basic things, we don't have the time or distance or attention to do them where we used to do them. So now we've we've made them into professions. That's why the service economy is here. So I think the other thing is that increasingly organizations have moved beyond some of the simple ways they used to run, no command and control. So one of the major things I think has has required more coaching is matrix organizations, structures where we have to achieve things through influence rather than through authority. Those things don't come naturally, and we need people who are expert in human behavior and those sorts of things. So coaches play a big role in helping us navigate some of those things. We see that on 360s as well. I find people are mostly, uh, they know how to manage their boss and their direct reports. It's the peer relationships that people are flummoxed by. They don't know how to manage them. And I think coaching adds huge value in that space. I think the other thing is reflection seems to be gone. And so we don't reflect now unless we have an hour scheduled with a coach. So we're scheduling a way of thinking that we used to just naturally have time for. So I think that's another big thing that coaches do is they force into our into our week some time for reflection and, and thinking. I think we're terrible at accountability anymore. We we now do the work that we're most afraid of blowing up. And uh, if, if we don't do this, we're going to get in trouble and we don't do the most important work. So coaching helps us get back to what's the most important work. So there's a variety of things, but in, in many ways, I think 
I'm not sure that coaching has ballooned for the positive reasons that I would like it to have ballooned for. I think it's, it's probably fixing some of the things we've allowed to become problems. But fortunately, uh, there's lots of good coaches out there who are pretty good at fixing those problems. But it's a little bit like, uh, you know, if we had not had such unhealthy diets and been so sedentary, we wouldn't need heart surgeons. The coaches are kind of the heart surgeons of all the things that we've naturally let go wrong in our in our ways of working these days. The way you're describing coaching, it's almost like it has a very central role in modern society. Very. I think it really does. I, I'm not sure that that's I'm not sure it's great that we got here, but now that we're here, same with heart surgeons. I'm pretty darn glad that if I need a triple bypass, I can get one, even if it's my own darn fault that I uh, didn't eat well and exercise. But yeah, I think coaching is something we need given many of the challenges that, that are true in our workplace today. And as we're stretching, we're going to do things that we're going to go through periods where things are difficult and not ideal, right? But perhaps... The coaching profession is here kind of to help us continue to stretch in a way that's perhaps more sustainable. Yeah, I I really hope so. It's like I also use a personal trainer at the gym because I, I don't know what's healthy, what's good form, all those sorts of things. So a coach can help us do these things in a way that's going to be productive, that's going to minimize the likelihood that we get injured, all those sorts of things that I think these things are positive. We have to remember that for most, it's a luxury to have these things, but for those who can afford them. So I'm also a big fan of these initiatives that are you know, bringing coaching to people who wouldn't otherwise have access to it. Because if we only give this amazing superpower to people who are already privileged, who are already at the top of corporations, people who are already like white and male and all those things, then we're just perpetuating all the problems. So we've got to make sure that the superpowers of coaching get more broadly to people as a mechanism or a catalytic mechanism for improving the diversity of our workplaces, the access. So I think we need to think a lot about that as a as an industry. Brother access to coaching is something that's already happening and is super exciting. I know we do a lot of that with ethical coach and, you know, it's incredible. People are so thankful to get the opportunity to work with the coaches in, in today's world. You know, if you're not used to working with like a therapist or, or, or something like that, it's like, there's very few instances in which you can sit down and someone's going to listen to you. You form a good relationship and they're experts in kind of helping you help yourself. You can go beyond that. It's, it's gold, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to find that. So yeah, those special moments, both for coaches and for their clients. So the more we can bring to more people, the better. Absolutely. Leanne, thank you so much for joining us in this episode of Coaches on Zoom Drinking Coffee. In this case, we have Barry's tea. Too interesting a conversation. My tea got cold. Yeah, mine too. But, you know, it still <laughs> tasted good. I just probably need an ice cube and then make it an iced tea. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, but um, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Alex. It was so fun. 